Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Charlie, if we haven't met yet, last week actually, I don't know if you guys know this, I think we set like a, a record high in kidsmen. We had lots of kids running around everywhere, and it's messy and it's beautiful. And so if you're new, my name's Charlie. I'd love to meet you. Stop me, say hi after the service. If you've been here a while, or this is your first or second or third time, before we get into Matthew, we begin by simply setting the expectations of this time together. Kind of acknowledging that what we do in this place is different than how the world views our role in culture. We live in, a, in an extremely critical culture. This last week alone, there's only been one thing I feel like all of culture has talked about, and it's asked you to make a judgment call about it. We live in a culture where you are sitting there saying, how can I make somebody feel worse about what they did so I feel better about what I did? That's what criticalness does. And we come to this place, and we acknowledge that, that Jesus invites us into a relationship with him that God is present. And what that means is that the spirit of God will speak to your spirit today through the scriptures. And so we don't come in here with a critical lens. We come in here simply asking the question, God, where are you inviting me to participate more with who you are today, this week? How can I see more of your goodness and more of your beauty today that I might live out this week? And so we start, before we dive into scriptures, simply by acknowledging that, by saying a prayer, by asking the Spirit to move in our spirit today, and and ask that you pray for me, because like I said last week, and I believe it's really difficult to be critical of somebody you're praying for, all right? So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can be here, that we can reset our standards of what's good and worthy in this space, that we remember, that we remember that Our pursuit of Jesus is the anchor of how we live every single day. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning through the scriptures. Show us more of the goodness of God. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to just say a quick silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit that you might hear this morning. I say pray for me, that God might use the preparation uh, and just his power and majesty to show us all in our text more of how good he is to us and more of why we worship him in the first place. That it's not a man and a message, but the means by which God saves is through the power of his word and the scripture. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in Matthew 11. We'll pick up at verse 25 today and round out our two-chapter arc that's taken us eight-ish weeks to get through. I remember one of my first church experiences when I decided to actually make church my own, if you will, and I said, I'm going to go to this youth group thing. I was in seventh grade, and it was this. You might have known this story. It was this choir tour that they did at my church. 
Basically, it was a trip in a bus with other kids in the youth group for two weeks, and every song ended in some kind of jazz hands, okay? And, and I remember we were about two weeks out, and I, yeah, I love Jesus. I came from a Christian home. I don't know if I was the most on fire for Jesus, and, and some leaders in the youth group pulled me out, and they sat me down, and they said, hey, Charlie, I got a couple questions for you. I said, what's up? They said, when was your last devotional? I didn't know. When, how, how many times do you pray? Okay. Uh, and they looked at me, and they said, because you're going on this trip, God can't do what he wants to do. And I thought, first, I'm like 5'1", 92 pounds. How big is your God? Second, um, I, I was hurt, and it was formative. It's funny how the baggage we carry around with us shapes how we see things, you know? To this day, there's been a couple other instances, to this day, I have a hard time going to other churches I see church through this lens of baggage that probably goes back even deeper than that, but it's defined by my hurt. I went to a Christian conference. The last one I went to was probably eight or nine years ago. It was a big one in Atlanta. Really cool. Jesus was there. You know what I'm talking about? And it was the first session in the morning. It's 9 a.m. And they said, it's so good to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn around and just give the person next to you a hug. And this guy turned to me with his arms open and I said, not going to happen. Look, you have, I don't know you, I probably don't like you, you know, that kind of sort of mentality. It's funny how our baggage shapes how we see Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about the baggage that we bring into these places. And what's funny right now in this cultural moment, I think we're having a reconciling or a reckoning with the baggage that has been building up over years in terms of how we see God. And you can look at numbers that prove that, whether it's Barnapoles that say for the first time since they've tracked this in nearly eight decades, less people in our country actually go to church on Sundays than do. It's 47%. It's never been that low before. In 2000, it was 70%. You can look at the mass movement of what's called the deconstruction movement. You guys know what this is? Basically, people that say, I'm going to deconstruct my faith instead of build into it. You can look at it from this new term coin called exvangelicals. Have you heard of that? Exvangelicals is a term simply being used by people who feel like there's too much baggage with the word evangelical. There's podcasts and there's articles and there's people leaving in droves because they look at Jesus through the lens of their baggage. Because here's, here's the thing, man. All of us come to this space with history. All of us come to this space with some kind of spiritual or religious baggage. And you might look at me and say, Charlie, I don't have any. Give us time and we'll give you some, you know? Because the church is full of broken people. What I want to know today, where our text takes us today, is how do we deal with that? What do we do with our baggage? Whether yours goes deep-seated down, you know, decades or whether it's new. Maybe it hadn't happened yet. Because our text starts out like this by saying in the beginning of verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, and that's really important, when it said said there, that word said in the Greek literally kind of more means answered. And so what Jesus is doing to wrap up this section is he's answering the last two chapters. He's answering the last two chapters when, just to be honest, this isn't fluffy, you're gonna be rich and love life, Jesus. This is things like you said to disciples of, you're gonna experience abuse and woe to you and beware of all other people and people are gonna kick you out of places you thought that loved you. It's a really tough section of of scriptures where Jesus defines that kingdom work is really difficult work and it's not easy and stick 
with me, stick with me, stick with me. And he wraps up by saying, because of all of this, because of the hardships you're going to endure, because it's not what you thought it was going to be, because I said this thing was good, but sometimes it feels not so good. Here's my answer to those moments. Because probably like us, if the disciples had gone and taught the ways of Jesus to their friends and family and got kicked out of the households, they'd have some baggage. And so he begins by saying, at this time, let me answer the hardship that comes with following me. So here's what I want to do today. It's a five-verse clip, but in the middle, there's this one verse, very popular in verse 28. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm a multiple slide kind of guy at CBC. I follow the TED Talk model. It's probably because I talk so slowly, I need to feel like it's moving somewhere. Um, but, but today, there won't be any more quotes on the screen. There won't be more verses on the screen. I'm going to use them and read from them and pull from them. And I'm going to tie the rest of those verses around this theme. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So if you want the quotes I use or some verses I use, you can email me afterwards or come and stop me. But this is the anchoring point, the centering point of Jesus' answer. When people ask, why is following Jesus hard? And what do I do with my baggage that comes from the hardships of following Christ? And so he starts by saying, come to me. I think one thing we have to understand is that when Jesus talks about coming to him, fundamentally, it's a, it's a beautiful description of, of who he wants to follow him. And that reflects on who he is. So in the verses prior to that, he defines it by saying, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. He's defining who he wants to follow him in the first place. So when he makes an invitation to come, he tells you exactly who he wants to come. And he says, I don't necessarily want the wise or intelligent, but the children. He has nothing against intellect, but he's describing a type of person. The first time I traveled outside of this country, my sister, who's lived outside of this country for quite a few years, said, do not, do not mix up intellect and education when I went to a third world country. God is not hitting against intellect in any form or kind. What he's doing is he's describing the kind of person that he wants to follow him. One that thinks, that knows that they still have something they need that is not attainable by themselves. This beautiful idea of what we call in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. And so he starts by saying, blessed are those in the Beatitudes, or in this text, come to me. And here's where I want, I want the kid, those that are innocent and know that they need me. And what that does, it's a really beautiful depiction of who Jesus is. Because he's saying, in a culture that divided people based on how much they knew about God, or how much they gave to God, all of you, even the lowest, weakest ones, I want. That's why he says in other texts in the scriptures, he says that Peter talks about it and says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance this beautiful description of who he wants in the first place, the ones that people aren't sure are worthy. I have a buddy of mine. I'm a pretentious cook. You know that? I, I like to use words that people don't use to show that I'm a better cook than you are. And I had a buddy of mine, this is years ago, and we were doing some kind of dish, and I made some kind of tapenade, you know, like you do. And I made some kind of tapenade, and I said, hey, it's going to go on a crostini. And my buddy was like, what is a crostini? I said, it's toasted bread. He said, so, so bread. So you're just going to put it on bread then. 
And I said, yeah. And he said, why didn't you say that? And I said, well, because I want to prove that I'm better than you, right? Jesus is saying in this moment, in this moment, you need to see my beauty because you need to see that I want all to come, even ones of you that you don't feel like you belong because society has said you're not good enough. He says, come all of you who are weary and burdened. You got to understand in the first century Jewish culture, there was idea that, that, that God loved different people more than other people based on your nationality, your ethnicity, or your gender. If you look at the temple in and of itself in the first century world or in the Old Testament, the closer you got to God, being in the middle in the holy of holies, the closer you got to God was a byproduct of where you were born, when you were born, how you were born. There was the court of the Gentiles on the outside. Everybody could get so close to God. But then if you were Hebrew, you got a little closer. If you were a man, you got a little closer. If you were in a Levite tribe, you got a little closer. If you're a priest, you got closer. If you're the high priest, you got closest. Even how they built their structure limited how much access you had to God because of things that were sometimes in and sometimes outside of your control. Jesus is saying, that is not how I build my kingdom. That is not who I am. That is not who I call. I call all people to simply come. Even how he called his disciples you know, the story of how Jesus called each and every one, or even more contextually, how disciples were called in the first century world. The 12 that he called had been rejected by the religious institution of the day as not good enough to be rabbis. But, but Jesus comes and says, you can follow me. It's this beautiful depiction of who Jesus wants to come in the first place, who he calls. And so we begin our conversation of what we do when we have baggage by simply remembering that Jesus calls all to come to him. And that's beautiful. In Hebrews 5, 2, it talks about the role of the high priest, which is what Jesus is. He's our high priest interceding for us and loving us and praying for us. And it says in Hebrews 5, 2, that the high priest is able to deal compassionately with those who are ignorant and erring. And the wording choice there, ignorant are those who sin because they don't know any better. Errant or wayward is another translation of those who sin because they do and they just don't care. And so the role of the high priest is to have compassion on those two kinds of people. This is how Jesus greets those who need him. Whether you know you're sinning or whether you don't know you're sinning, he greets you and says, come to me because I love you. And here's what we have to fight is our baggage. I remember when I was in high school, my parents said to me, there's a couple lists of things I wasn't supposed to do that were big no-nos. And they would say, hey, if you find yourself in these situations, just call me and I'll come pick you up. And, and we won't even talk about it, right? You won't get in that much trouble. I, I was like, oh, okay, sure, you know? That, that's gonna go over really well. We'll just not talk about it and see how that goes. I was like, I do not believe you for a second. Sometimes we think that's Jesus. That he says, come, but we're gonna deal with the sin stuff later. We're gonna really get down to why, we're gonna, we're gonna maybe not tonight, but in the morning, we're gonna get up and talk about how you disappointed me, how you weren't good enough, how, 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 how. Jesus simply says, come all. And the picture the scripture paints is one of absolute acceptance and love. It's a really great book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I'm gonna quote it quite a bit today. And in it, he talks about this idea. It's all on this passage, by the way, and it's a whole book and uh, exceptional read. And he, he talks about how Jesus was built for accepting people that needed him. And so instead of his disappointment mounting with sinners that come to Jesus, it actually increases his joy because this is what he was made for. 
It's like if a doctor gets more patience, it's a good thing because this it gives them life. Sometimes we run away from God because we deep down believe that he deep down is disappointed in us instead of deep down believe that he loves us so incredibly more than we can fathom. Jesus begins by saying, come to me. The beauty of Jesus is seen in who he calls. All of us. Regardless of past, regardless of present, regardless of, he calls. The verse goes on, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I love this idea of coming to him in verse 27. He fills it out a bit and says, all things have been handed to me by my father. No one knows the son except for the father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal himself to him. What Jesus is doing, he's saying, here's who I want, everybody, by the way. And also, also, here's what they come to. They come to me. And here's who I am. I am the equivalent of, I am the Son of the living God. I have been given all authority and all power. This idea, especially in the first century world, of knowing God was one that seemed almost unattainable in certain respects. And it's a question we as a society, humanity, has tried to answer for all of our existence, is how can we know whatever deity is? When Gandhi was on his deathbed, he had a family member that came to him and said, um, have you been looking, you've been looking for God all your life? Have you found him yet? And Gandhi's reply was, no, I'm still looking. This idea that we want to find an attainable version of God is fundamental to who we are as a people. And what Jesus says is, if you're looking for God, stare at me, because that's who I am. He's making no qualms about in this moment, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a king and I'm not a good teacher and I'm not a, the best rabbi. I'm all those things, but I'm so much more. God has given me as his son all the authority on earth to reveal who God is and the best place you're gonna go to see the picture of the God that we can't see is Jesus. That's why we study him. That's why we follow him because Jesus is what God looks like. Hebrews talks about it, that he is the appearance of, the nature of a loving God. And so what he does in this moment is says, hey, you're going to come to me and let me define who I am. I am the God that you've been looking for all the time. And, and the word there, the text there in the Greek implies more than just, I can Jesus jeopardy my way out of all your questions about God. The, the text there, when it says to know in that language, it means more than just, I know conceptually, I know relationally. I used to use this example of being a parent and reading the books before actually being a parent. Now I'm going to go with soccer update this week, everybody. All right? We had a game yesterday, and we dominated. 7-0. They barely got the ball past uh, midfield. I just want you to know that. Um, but at one point, at one point, <laughs> really it was just like one girl that scored all the goals. It was not my daughter. At one point, I am holding her and running around and holding the hand of another girl. And, and I, think, I think what's really interesting about that is that this is not how I thought it would go, you know? My first practice a month ago when we started this journey, I had read blogs about it. I had read chapters and books about being a soccer coach. I had read four or five, I mean, I'd watched four or five YouTube channels on the best drills to do. You can ask my assistant coach, I had an outline Minute by minute, I had team objectives. I, I had this thing ready to go. And then you know what happened? The first practice happened, everybody. And I realized, I thought I knew. I had no earthly idea what it was like to coach three-year-olds. And all my friends that said, Charlie, don't do it, were right. <laughs> There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a difference between taking classes about Jesus and knowing Jesus. 
Jesus is saying, I just don't know about God. I know a soul and his character. I know his rhythms and what drives him. If you want to see God, look beyond your Old Testament to the first century Jewish person and look at me because I know I'm deeper than your text will ever tell you. So it's this beautiful depiction of not just who he calls, but who he calls us to. And it says in the text that God had given him all authority, and that's really important. Not just because we need to know that Jesus is bigger than all your problems. Sure, that's great. Go to Colossians 1. We'll talk about it sometime. But what I love about this text is that Jesus makes this case that I've been given all authority, and here's why that matters. He also says in the text um, after this that I am gentle to you. And it's a combination we don't get much. I have a friend of mine who goes to a church and he's thinking about leaving the church because they want to make membership mandatory and he's got some authority issues because he's got church baggage. He has this problem seeing authority as overtly good all the time because in his life, in his past, when he's seen authority, especially in religious contexts, it's let him down. So Jesus says, I have all the authority, but I'm gentle. And that's really important because here's one thing authority doesn't do, normally lead towards more gentleness. I'll quote some stats that I found interesting. A group of Berkeley researchers found a scientific connection, I love this, between power and jerkiness, that's in quotes. One of the Berkeley studies studied drivers, and they said that drivers of high-status cars like Mercedes and BMWs cut off other drivers 30% of the time compared to only 7% for people that drive Hondas and Toyotas. I realize we're in Flower Mound, and that was probably not a stat to quote here, all right? <laughs> he goes on to say, that researchers uh, believe power has somewhat dehumanizing effect on people and the powerful are more self-focused and less empathetic. It says there are actually MRI studies of the brain that indicate that people who feel powerful show far less motor resonance, which allows you to imagine things from the perspective of others than the relatively powerless. Quote, it's not so much that powerful people think they're better than you as that they simply just don't think about you at all, one researcher says. Historian Henry Adams has a quote, and he says, power is sort of a tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. Here's a problem. Is it so often in our lives we have baggage because the powerful people don't protect the less powerful people. Jesus says, I have all the authority, but I'm different than everybody else. I am gentle and humble in heart. It's a beautiful depiction of why Jesus is beautiful. Because he doesn't sacrifice empathy when he gets power because he doesn't stop loving because he's bigger. Jesus says, I have all the authority, but I am gentle and humble in heart. It's a cocktail we don't necessarily see most of the time in our world. And in the first century world, where they knew deity through the Roman gods and through the, the Greek gods, those gods had no desire to be known or care for you. You can read through some of the interactions between their versions of deity and humanity. And the only time those gods actually interacted with humanity was when they wanted something or where they had illicit relationships with humanity. It was never life-giving for people. It was always taking from people. And so Jesus comes in this context and says, you need to see that I have come with all power, but I'm also gentle. Don't ever confuse those two things and think they're opposite. They're not in Jesus. They're not in God. It's the idea that we say that the reason why power corrupts is because we can't handle the weight of the power we're given. God can. When power is given to the right person with the right purpose, all of us feel better. So Jesus says, I've been given all authority, but also I am gentle and humble. What I really love about 
how he's describing himself here is when he says, come to me, <laughs> the difference between God saying, come to a place and come to a person is monumental. I love that Jesus doesn't say, hey, come to the temple and we'll take care of everything. He doesn't say, go to your rabbi. He doesn't say, go to the Holy of Holies. Jesus sits there and says, come to me. There is a distinct difference between reaching down towards someone and reaching out for someone. The Jewish and the Roman and the Greek gods that they thought they knew always reached down and not out. And the difference is posture. One is a little selfish and one is selfless. One is more sympathetic than the other. I have an 11-month-old son, and his name's Bennett. And it's really interesting. I've noticed this over the last couple weeks, but he started to crawl about three weeks ago, and now he's just an avid little crawler. He's quick, that dude, you know? And it's funny, I'll come in the house, and I'll say, Bennett, 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 and I'll reach out my hands to him, and he'll sit on his butt, and he'll look up and be like, hey, what's going on? I'll say, okay, that didn't work. But, but literally, this is true, if I kneel down and get on the ground and hold my arms out to him and say, Bennett, 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 this dude squeals and sprints crawling towards me every time. There's a difference between reaching down and reaching out. And what you need to know when Jesus says, I have come and you need to come to me is that he is not reaching down towards us. We have a God that reaches out because he became one of us. And the difference is monumental. That Jesus doesn't say, come to a place, come to a person. It's part of his beauty. Jesus is not only beautiful because of who he calls, he's beautiful because how he calls us from a God with a nature that says, come to me as I'm reaching out to you. So he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you're going to come to a person... The goodness of coming to that person is only defined by what they can offer you, what they can give you, their character. I really like watching religious, I like all documentaries, uh, but I like religious documentaries especially. Just because usually what you see in religious documentaries is the same couple questions that all religions try and answer. Why are we here and what does God look like and what happens and who can explain evil the best? Give me purpose. And, and what I like about them is when you watch them, usually they don't end super well because the people they follow aren't worthy of being followed. There was one called, I think, Wild Wild Country a couple of years ago, this movement in Oregon in the late 80s, I believe it was, talking about this Rajanish people. And over time, they followed this man that couldn't withstand the weight of the power they gave him. And you know what happens next? It crumbled down. So Jesus is going to say, look, I, I'm, I am worthy of following. I'm beautiful because of who I call and because of how I call, but also what I give is something you need. So he says, come to me, you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He goes on to say, to talk about his yoke, take my yoke and, and learn from me. And in a first century Jewish context that had very specific application. So you might be thinking about farming um, and, and, and you can take this application there, but I think it had a more direct application to the Jewish religious system. As a rabbi, when you taught, there was, you know, the Old Testament books, and then there was a book called the Mishnah that the Jewish uh, community still follows. The Mishnah is the oral interpretation of the Jewish law. So what would happen is you'd say, I want to follow this rabbi. You'd pick the rabbi you want to follow, and then his oral interpretation of the law, of the law was known as his yoke, right? It was known as the way that you're supposed to live in light of how he interpreted God's reality in our present world. You, you can see it. If you go to Matthew 19, for example... Uh, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, hey, let's talk about divorce. 
Hey, can you divorce someone for any reason you want to? And, and the reason why that question is asked is at this time, there were two major players, major rabbis. There was a guy named Shammai and a guy named Hillel. You'll see both of those in different parts of the New Testament. And they had very different interpretations on what divorce looked like based on the law of God. And so they come to Jesus and they say, which interpretation do you follow? What, what yoke do you put on? His translation or his translation of what divorce looks like? And sometimes Jesus is in line with one or the other. The yoke was the burden of the weight of the law that you had to live out in your every single day. There's a, a verse in Matthew 23. I'll read it for you. Verse four. It says, the teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is describing the yoke of these teachers. This is how you're supposed to live in light of who Jesus is. This is how you earn more of God. This is how you get God to love you and like you. That's the Jewish faith. If I do, God will do. If I'm enough, God will be enough for me. If I for God, he'll fight for me. In this context, in this context, and in our context that is fueled by meritocracies, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is light in verse 30. Meaning, his interpretation of all the things you have to do to get God to love you is less than all the other religious people because it's simply abide in him. It's this beautiful depiction of what it means to follow God in a culture that, that taught that you had to fight for God to get God. In his book, Dana Ortland says it like this, talking about the purpose of Galatians, which talks about this meritocracy idea. He said, its purpose is to bring the heart of Christ to bear on our chronic tendency to function out of a subtle belief that our obedience strengthens the love of God. In a world that's full of meritocracy, it's amazing to believe that my obedience to God doesn't make God love me anymore. Because that's really difficult sometimes to divorce ourselves from this idea that if I do more, God will love me more. Even the religious systems that we support, churches, can feed into this mentality of I need to show up and be good and be right and that'll make me better with God. So what happens is sometimes the religious systems that we create to show us more of God actually become weights around us following God. More and more they require more of us and less and less they show us more that Jesus said, I'm what's required of you for God to be your God. It's this beautiful depiction in the middle of a culture that struggled with how to get God to love them that, that they just needed to stop trying to follow the rules and love God because of what Jesus is about to do for them. We're going to talk about Sabbath a little bit this summer. We did a couple years ago. It's one of my favorite topics. And I think this idea of Sabbath, it's why it's the sign of the, of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. So it's the sign of all the laws that God gave to his people. God gave 613 laws to the Jewish people. These, this is my contract to you in Exodus. This can define you. This is going to be the differentiator of you and everybody else, these 613 laws. And then do you know what he made the sign of that covenant to typify the whole thing? It wasn't a report card, which I think it should have been if he really cared about the laws. What it was, was Sabbath. He said, the sign of all these laws that you stop and recognize that you need to rest. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, the Hebrew morning-evening sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. The Hebrew day begins at night with rest. 
a reminder that it's not our efforts that merit God's favor, but it's the work and person of Jesus. Ortland goes on to say, my favorite quote in the whole book, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of God or from the heart of Christ. You can live it for God, meaning I'm going to work for you and try really hard, or from, meaning I know that I'm yours, and that changes who I'm becoming. Those are fundamentally different ways to see our relationship with God. So when Jesus says my way is easier, it's because we live into the identity of God because of Christ, not us. And he's speaking this in the middle of a culture that do no other way than work hard for who God was, who God wanted them to be. Why is Jesus beautiful? He's beautiful because of of who he calls and of how he calls and of what he gives us. In just a restless world, he says, I am the rest you need. Stop trying to earn the love of God. It's yours because I am here. It's a fundamentally different way to have a relationship with God. And I would say it is the differentiator between Christianity and all other religions, all of them that I've studied. All the other ones I've studied say you do this and God does this. You do this and you get this. And in Christ, what we have is Jesus did this so. It's restful in a restless world. He says, you're tired. I can give you rest because God's affection for you is based on me. It's beautiful. It's freeing. It's good news. It's what gospel is. So we say all the time, if you had a bad day yesterday, it doesn't change how much God loves you today. Now, hopefully, if you have a full encounter with the absolute beautiful grace of God, it causes you to change who you are because it's pretty tough to understand God's grace for you and sacrifice for you and not say, man, that's going to change who I'm becoming. I want to be more like that. But it begins with the overwhelming power of what grace does in and for us. And just, I think it's worth noting that in this text, it never says we're going to get out of the problems of the world. It doesn't say life's going to be easier. The last two chapters pointed to that. It simply said that God's going to be working for us and we don't have to work for God to get God to work for us. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, we're experiencing trouble on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're knocked down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body. For we who are alive are constantly being handed over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our mortal body. As a result, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's this beautiful depiction that even though life is difficult, we can rest in a God who gives us rest because of what he's done for us. And if you really keep that going into what Christ is doing now, you know what Christ is doing now? That's why I don't like the Jesus in your heart language because he's got a job right now. He's interceding for you right now. Jesus is sitting next to God and he's saying, God, I love these people. God, I love my followers. God, help my followers. He's interceding for us. I love what John Calvin writes about uh, Christ's intercession. He says, Christ turns the father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins constantly. It's that scene in Indiana Jones in the first one at the end when like they can't look at the ark or their face is going to melt off in 80s CGI. You know what I'm talking about? And Indian Jones is like, don't look, don't look, don't look. That's what Jesus is doing. Hey, God, look at my righteousness right now. Look at me. Look at my righteousness right now. I know they said, look at my righteousness right now. Because he cares, because he loves, because he came, because he reached out. 
He's saying, I'm enough. Christ is constantly interceding for us, and that is incredibly freeing to understand. That's his role, that's his function, that's his heart desire. So what do we do with all of this baggage? I think that the way we deal with our spiritual and religious baggage is to realize that the beauty of Christ is bigger and better than our baggage. We fight our religious baggage by focusing on the beauty of Jesus each and every day. That's why every Sunday I get up here before we do a sermon and I say, I hope what we do today is open the scriptures so that you might see more of God's goodness, so that you might see more of God's, Jesus's beauty. It's why we gather together in the first place. There's a theologian I follow and he talked about the whole reason behind sound doctrine. So it's good that we study our Bibles and that we memorize verses and that we take classes on the epistles. It's good that we understand the timeline of the Bible, but the reason we do all of that is to see the beauty and greatness of God. The reason we have all this information about God is to expand our idea of how beautiful he is and how good he is towards us. One author says, the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is to preserve the beauty of God, just like the reason we care for right lenses for a camera is to capture with precision the beauty of the pictures we are taking. What we need now is seeking more of God's goodness as we see more of his greatness. What that means is that we come to God because he's bigger, better, faster, stronger, but when we see his beauty, we stay. It's like if you were single again and dating. You might look at somebody across a a bar, this is a church, a a small group, and... (laughs) Yay, singles mixer. Um... (laughs) potluck of this in the Midwest. I'll get there. Uh, and you might say, man, that person's very good looking. You might say, man, that's a really nice car. And the profoundness of like the riches in this person might draw you to them. But you know what keeps you to them? Their goodness to you over time. You know that? They can be all the richest they are in the world, but they're not good to you. You're not going to see the beauty in them and it won't last. What Jesus is saying here is see my beauty in my goodness. And that will keep you following God amidst all of the baggage because the way that we fight our baggage, mine, is to simply remember this verse on the screen, how beautiful Jesus is. It cuts through some of that stuff and reminds us of what's truly important and truly good. So this week, next week, the next week, I think what we need to do is simply ask the question, where are we seeing the beauty of God in the world and where are we showing others that beauty? Are we living in a way where others see the beauty of Christ? God doesn't need you to defend him. Sometimes Christians get that mistaken. God needs you to show the people that he's beautiful. Where are we living in a way that shows others the beauty of God? So I'd I'd say this week, maybe all you do is is find those places where you see God's beauty. You know that? Find them. It could be in community with friends. It could be outside. It could be in church. It could be at a bar. Probably not. It could be any of these places. Find the places where you see the beauty of Christ and sit in them. And then allow that to be seen as you live out his beauty in your day-to-day. So where is that for you? How are you focusing on the beauty of Jesus over the baggage that we bring into this conversation and yet to have discovered? So the slide thing today, I normally have between 25 and 30 slides, and I hit them in any kind of order just to keep who's ever back in the booth really with it, you know? And I, I, like, I like stuff like that. It keeps me involved and entertained and engaged. And I gave my slides uh, this week and she looked back there and said, there are only three. Are you okay? Like, are you, are you, is everything all right? And I said, yeah. Because today, instead of all the quotes, which I love, 
in the verses which I love. I just wanted us for the, next, for the last 35 minutes to look at that one verse and see the beauty of Christ. Not look away. Because we fight our baggage through seeing Jesus' beauty. It's a good thing. Which is why we're going to end today with communion. Because what communion is, it's a tangible and visible and spiritual reminder of the beauty of a God who sacrificed himself for you. Of the beauty of Jesus who says, I'm going to reach out for you by dying for you. It's a beautiful reminder of why Christ is beautiful and bigger than our baggage. It's what we need to remember and show others. And so we haven't done communion like this in two years, everybody. Just so you know, uh, all the tables are gluten-free because we're reaching out to you like Christ reached out to us. Um, And and you're going to go through, so you can take a time, you can pray in your seat, you can contemplate, you can connect with God, you can come right up right away, and when you get back to your seat, you can pray a little bit, it might take some time, but that's okay. Because what's a better way to end our day than spending time looking at the beauty of Jesus through his sacrifice for us? And you'll take the bread and that he said it was his body that he broke for us, and you'll dip it in the glass of grape juice that he said it was his blood that he poured out for us. Or if you don't want to do the germ thing, which is totally okay, you can take a piece of bread, and we have a little cup for you there. You can just grab that instead. That's just fine. And we're going to spend the next few minutes just remembering the beauty of Christ that fights our baggage. Because what he did for you and how he did it was incredibly beautiful because he loves you. Let's take communion together. Still finishing up, that's fine. I, I think about the baggage that I carried into my relationship with the church. I think about that when I graduated from Jesus College, the second one. Um, I just knew I had one thing. I just knew I didn't want to work in a church because of my baggage. You probably know some of my story. I was a long haul trucker for a year rather than work in a church. And, and then I found this place. And there's a lot of churches like this place. What it's done over the last 14 years for me is help me see the beauty of Christ instead of my baggage. If you've taken CBC 101, we'll have one in a few weeks after Easter, and you get to hear from the stories of, or even a newcomer lunch, when you hear from the stories of our staff, me and Andy and Nick and Kara and Delid and goes down the list, there's a theme. So we all are wrestling with some baggage about God. And God brought us together to show people his beauty through it. It's beautiful. That's my hope and that's my prayer for this church. Because we all got the baggage. But might we be a place, might we be a place people can see beyond it and see the overwhelming beauty of a God who says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for the beauty of Christ who calls us to himself calls us to rest who calls us and says I'm enough so you don't have to be might we be a people that live from the heart of Christ and not for the heart of Christ that can rest in the middle of a turbulent world because we know that God is for us and doing all that might we be a church that truly show the world around us that has more and more baggage about who God is and why he's good. Might we truly be able to show the beauty of Christ to a world that needs to see it. We pray these things in his name.